How many here are dreamers? Any dreamers? Uh, I don't mean like visionary, although that's a form of dreaming, but how many like you like and, and, and often experience really vivid dreams that you remember? Okay, Hans, uh, you guys are gifted. You really are. You got it down. I am not one of those people. Uh, my wife, on the other hand, Dana, she is a dreamer extraordinaire. She remembers the shoes she was wearing, which is the most important part. Uh, but she remembers you know, what sweater she had on, uh, what flavor of tea she was drinking in her, in her dream. She remembers it, it, so much so. This is the, the comparison, the contrast between her and I. Uh, so one Saturday, um, and oh, consequently, when I have a dream that I remember, I'm really excited about it. And I have to tell everyone. So one Saturday, we get in the car and we're driving into the Metroplex and I'm so excited I turn to her and I say, hey, I had a dream and she's so excited because she's into dreams. She's like, okay, tell me about it. Seriously, by the time we got to the end of the driveway, I was done. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I woke up um, and in my dream and I you know, had a Rubik's Cube and that's it. She's like, oh, cool, that's neat, really cool, neat. Yeah, great. You, you dreamt and you remembered your dream. Awesome. She's trying to be really nice to me. Well, then she says, well, I had a dream last night. I'm like, yeah, I bet you did. <laughs> well, seriously, we are 45 minutes later in the Metroplex. She's still telling me her dream. This is just the difference between the two of us. She has these vivid dreams. I don't. So when a dream comes my way, and when I have a dream that I remember, I, like I said, I have to tell people. Well, it was about 12 years ago. Our son is 16 now. At the time, he was, he was four. And I had this, this vivid dream, and I, I truly believe it was a gift from God and a dream from God. Um, in the dream, um, Gabe, who was four years old, was a proprietor of a, uh, of a um, secondhand store. It was, it was kind of a, a log cabin-y kind of uh, thing with the, the old windows, and it was, you know, the dust is in the air, and the, the sun is coming through the windows and lighting up those beams of light. And, and in this room, there's just all sorts of things to buy and sell. If you've ever been to a secondhand store, kind of a, a picture that some of you might put in your mind is, is uh, Star Star Wars, Watto on Tatooine with Anakin, you know, kind of that setting where, you know, here's Gabe, this four-year-old, he's the proprietor, although he didn't look like Watto at the time, but uh, he's this proprietor of this secondhand store, and I am just watching it as, as we'd be watching a movie. Uh, I wasn't a part of the, the scene, I wasn't in it, I was just kind of the fly on the wall watching this, this scene unfold. And there was Gabe, he's sitting in behind this, this uh, desk, and there's stuff hanging on from the ceiling, stuff piled up in the corner, stuff on the, on the counter in front of him, and I'm sitting there, I'm proud, I'm just, man, my kid's four and he owns his own business, woo, yes, you go, buddy, and and. Everything is fine. He's buying and he's selling. People are coming in. They're picking up a little trinket. Hey, I'll give you a quarter for this. And he's saying, yeah. And he, so he'd take the quarter and he'd give, give the person the, uh, 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 this trinket. You know, somebody would come in. Maybe it was a deck of cards. Hey, I'll give you, you know, 50 cents for that. And, and so there's this buying and the selling going on. And, and I'm sitting there and I'm just this proud dad. I'm, I'm oh, look at my son. He's, he's happy and he's, he's, he's making a living. And, and just, you know, even as these transactions were going uh, back and forth, you know, Gabe was just interacting with, with these customers and these clients. He was buying some things. He was selling some things. And then something happened. 
A guy came in and, and he picked up a, an item that, that had some value, it had some worth. And, and he picked it up and, and he wanted to buy it and he looked at my son and he said, hey, I'll give you a quarter for this. And I'm thinking, okay, no, 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 that's not going to happen. No, this is going to be a transaction and stuff. And before I could, could do anything, as if I could do anything from my point of view, Gabe said, fine, and took a quarter for something that had great value. To this day, I remember the feeling. I remember the feeling. It was just like, oh my goodness. Someone just took advantage of my kid. Someone just robbed my kid. In, wrapped in that, though, there was also this animosity and this anger toward the person who had, had ripped off my son, but there was also this anger and animosity toward my son. Uh, you know, Gabe, how could you? How, you know, all these things coming up. And, and in that moment, when I woke up, just these tears started flowing down my face. Because I believe it, it gave me a picture into God's heart, not just my heart, but God's heart. You see, we go through life, and I believe we have one of two, maybe more pictures of God, but, but one of two pictures in particular of who God is and what He's like. I think I spent most of my life with, with one picture of God, and that was an angry, vindictive hateful God who was upset that a transaction had gone down and I had somehow disappointed him. That my relationship with God was somehow tied to my performance and my proficiency as the proprietor of my store. And yet at the same time, there was another picture of God's heart that brought the tears to my eyes. And that was one of heart of love and grace and compassion for a son who'd been ripped off and robbed. Much more to do with that story. Much more lessons for a dad. Much more in terms of a lesson as a son of God, a child of God. You see, to that point in my life, I probably had experienced and believed and gone through life believing that God was a God with high expectations and demanded perfection. That means he's a holy God, isn't he? He has great requirements, and when I disappoint him, he's sitting there going, dirty, rotten loser. Why'd you do that? And the only way I felt that I could get back into good graces with him was to perform in such a way that, that he would put his trust in me again. Instead, the revelation that came loud and clear to me was each and every one of us, myself included, has been robbed by the enemy of God. And that hurts the heart of God. It hurts the heart of God. Brought tears to my eyes.
What I want us to hear today is that God's heart for you is one of grace and love and compassion. And His heart breaks when you've been sold a bill of goods from the enemy of God. And you've been robbed, you've been stolen from, you've been cheated, you've been lied to. God's heart breaks. It has broken and it continues to break. Each and every time that happens. When you turn your Bibles to Genesis 3, and you might be sitting here going, okay, Darren, um, did you miss something when you were on sabbatical? Um, because we're in the Christmas season, all right? You might still be back in November, but this is Christmas season, and we're supposed to be in Matthew, we're supposed to be in Luke, um, maybe Isaiah, and yeah, you could bring a Micah verse in there from time to time. But, but uh, Genesis, hang with me. Because there's something here in Genesis that I believe each and every one of us needs to see and needs to hear. It's not your typical Christmas incarnation story, but yet it is. Verse 1 of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And we're told that the serpent approached Eve and lied to her, whispered to her, stole from her. Just like the man came into my boy's store and stole from him. And look at verse 6. It tells us the woman was convinced by the serpent's lies. And she saw that the tree in front of her was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. She took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, Adam, who was with her. And that's another sermon for another time. And he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were open. They suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Verse 8, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord among the trees. Then the Lord called to the man, where are you? Any of you text message in here? Text message uh, people, that's your form of communication. Okay. Um, just give the thumbs up, okay? <laughs> just, you know, click that button. Um, <clears throat> you ever been misunderstood? Nobody in here has ever been misunderstood text messaging, right? Okay. Um, how many times, uh, you know, have you written something and somebody has completely missed uh, it? How about, um, how about this one? Um, I've used this with Dana. Sometimes we're out shopping and she's in one end of the store and, and I'm at the other and I'll get a text message from her. Or I'll send her one. Um, uh, what are you doing? You can take that a number of different ways. You really can. You know, just it's what are you doing or it's what are you doing? Or it could be, all caps, what are you doing? Right? Okay, for those of you who haven't found the caps lock and are sending me emails, you know you're yelling at me all the time, right? Okay. Just unclick the caps lock, please. Oh, but what are you doing? Can be, you know, it's just those words, what are you doing? But you don't get the inflection. You don't get the tone of voice, do you? It can be, you know, what are you doing? 
It could be sarcastic. It could be, you know, anger. Any number of things. Just type in the exact same thing. What are you doing? How about this one? I don't know. Or for those of you who are really um, awesome, efficient, IDK. And for some of you, you just got that for the first. So that's what that means. <laughs> You've been seeing, seeing that for years and you're just like, Fuck. IDK. You're a, I don't know. And that can come across a number of different. So you get asked a question, texted a question, and you get the response back, I don't know. Well, that can offend you. Uh, you know, it's just, I don't know, but it could be, I don't know. Even though they don't put the, because that'd be really hard to text, but some of you are, are proficient at that even. It could be, you know, once again, all, I don't know. You know, once it, gets, it gets skewed in just the term. Well, here in Genesis 3, we have God coming looking for Adam and Eve, and, and what's his text? Where are you? And we take that, or can take that, in a, in a number of different ways. We can do it all caps. Where are you, Adam, for Pete's sake? Where are you? Get your rear end over here because i got to deal with you. Right? It could be that. It could be, where are you? Just complete exasperation. How about this one? Maybe some of us feel like God was speaking this way uh, when he said, where are you? Oh, Adam, where are you? Because when you come out, I'm going to hit you with a big stick, you know? <laughs> Oh, come here. You know, you got to coax your, you know, your cat or your dog out. Come here. Bad dog, right? You know, whatever. I don't know. But we get these images just from that term. Where are you? We get thinking, what's God getting at here? And it, it, it's all caught up in who we believe God is. And if we believe God is the God with the big stick who wants to beat us up for stepping over the line, we believe He's a God who's going, where are you? And trust me, I spent a good part of my life believing that God was a God who was saying, where are you? Come out here because I got something I need to talk to you about and it ain't good. But trust me, when we truly get looking at the heart of God, who He is, what He's like, He's sincerely saying, Adam, where are you? Because my heart's breaking for you right now. And we're out of this relationship. We're, this isn't normal. This isn't the way things should be. But he doesn't stop at desperation. He's, he, he continues with the solution. Just the way my mind works, I always have to put these passages of Scripture and these accounts into kind of a scene that's familiar to me. And after this happens, I, we jump ahead into verse 15 of Genesis 3. And I kind of have this picture. Here's God with Adam and Eve and the serpent sitting in front of him. It's almost like me and my two buddies after we had a scrap in grade school in the front yard and mom came out and broke it up. It's just kind of this picture I have of, uh, and, and God is, is standing there and He's got something to say to each one of these participants. 
He has something to say to Adam. He has something to say to Eve. He talks about a curse that's, that's on the land that's going to affect Adam for the rest of his life. He, he talks about a curse that's upon uh, Eve and the, the pain that would be increased in childbirth. And then in verse 15, he turns to the serpent and he has something to say to the serpent. And this is where I want us to land today. He says to the serpent, God says, I will put enmity, I will put hatred, strife, struggle between you and the woman. There's this hostility that was going to exist. We'll look at that a a bit in, in just a little bit. He says, and between your seed and her seed, he, I want to stop there. He's just said, I'm going to put enmity, I'm going to put this struggle and this, this, this strife between you two. It's going to be between your seed and her seed. And then he doesn't just stop at, at a theoretical item or an impersonal item. He, he names the seed. He, he, the seed of this woman shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Hold it, keep that up there for just a second. So we're talking about the seed and then personalizing that the seed is he, a person. And then we have these two sentences, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And some versions we have, he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. And it leads us to believe that those are two different words. But in fact, those are the exact same word. It's shuf in, in Hebrew. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And you notice it's the same damage, but it's to different locations. And one is fatal and one is not eternally. The enemy in this one Proclamation is condemned to die, condemned to be defeated, and yet the bruising of our Savior of the seed of the woman is not fatal and is not permanent. It's important to know. Here we are given in the moments after the woman, in the moments after the man took the fruit that they were forbidden to take. Moments after the sin was committed, we're not talking hundreds of years, we're not talking thousands of years, we're not talking generations, we're talking in the same scene. God comes looking for Adam, God comes looking for Eve, collects them together, and in that moment proclaims what will happen. And this is the first flicker of the gospel that we were given in all of Scripture. It doesn't take long. We don't have to wait to Isaiah. We don't have to wait to Micah. We don't have to glean from the Psalms. We don't have to to glean in other parts of Scripture. Here, in the moment that sin enters the world, God's solution rings loud and true. One commentator says, no sooner was the wound given than the remedy was provided and revealed. The seed of the woman, he will destroy you and have victory, complete victory over sin, hell, death, and the grave. Corruption of this creation, of God's perfect creation, would not be permanent because God had a solution for the damage.
But you see, it wouldn't come in the way that people would expect. We get thinking there's a big problem, we need a big solution. Anytime we have a big problem, we have to over-engineer a solution. I don't know if you've ever uh, been working around the house, had something that, that was stuck and you had to go get what, we, what I call Mr. Persuasion. It's that big sledgehammer out in the, in the garage. And, and whether it's uh, you know, a board that's nailed down, you've got to bust that loose, or maybe it's something else that's stuck, you get Mr. Persuasion and things are going to move, Right? And we are thinking huge problem with sin. We need a huge, massive solution. The solution has to overwhelm the problem. But not so with God. You look at Joshua crossing the Jordan River and coming up against the fortified, the heavily fortified city of Jericho. He's got this small army going up against this fortified city. And he goes, uh, God, um, I think we need a bigger sledgehammer. And God says, I got this. What I want you to do is I want you to surround the city. I want you to walk around the city seven times on the seventh day, uh, seven other, uh, on the seventh day seven times. And then I want you to, to, to shout, blow the trumpets. And Joshua's saying, do you have a different plan up there? Someone else I can talk to? You see, God and His solution is much different than what we'd expect. If you're familiar with the story of Gideon, one of the judges, he's going up against the Midianites. He's got 30,000 men. He's poised for a battle. And God says, Ah, uh, by the way, uh, hey, Gideon, um, 30,000 is too many. Um, uh, let's let's pare that down a little bit. And uh, Gideon's kind of, and what are you thinking about? And God takes him down to 10,000 men. And Gideon's like, I have no clue what you're up to, God, but uh, you're God and I'm not, so I'm going to follow you and I'm going to trust you. And then God says, and by the way, you still have too many men. And, and Gideon's saying, what, 10,000 isn't enough? Or, or, or is too many? And, uh, and God says, well, yeah, it's too many. Takes him down to 300. 30,000 to 300? And we get thinking, how is this going to happen? How does God come out victorious? How does God's people come out victorious with 300? And yet they do. Time and time and time again. Take David as he goes up against Goliath. What did Saul want? Saul wanted, hey, you got to wear my armor. You got to take up my big sword because a, a big giant requires, requires a big sword, right? And see, that's our economy. That's our figuring is, is a big problem requires a big solution to overwhelm. And yet, that is not always God's solution. Our, God, our solution and God's solution are usually much, much different. And for our brokenness and for our shame and for our struggles, God sent Jesus as a baby. So small and yet so big. The seed, the smallest, the most unassuming, the atom that is about to explode, even as Micah talked about in chapter 5, 
The prophet said, you, O Bethlehem, though you're the smallest of the clans, out of you will come the ruler and the victorious one. And here, almost unnoticed, so small, Jesus comes onto the scene as a baby, born of a virgin. You ever spent time holding the baby? For us in our home, it's been 16 years, but Wednesday, I was out in the lobby here, and Steve Spurlock, many of you know Steve, and his uh, little grandson, Lucas, they were in the first service, and it was perfect timing because Lucas was kind of fussing and making some noise just as I was about to talk about him, so he knew. But uh, Lucas was out in the lobby, and I came out into the lobby, and Steve and I got talking, and I just asked if I could hold Lucas, and and I tell you, within about 30 seconds of me holding Lucas, Lucas was out like a light. You could, you could tell the eyes just kind of, he just melted into my arms. I was just sitting there, this is the kind of baby I like, you know. But I'm sitting there, and a baby. You know, Lucas wasn't sitting there, he didn't drive here on his own. He didn't, you know, you know get up and walk over to the drinking fountain. He didn't, he, Lucas is completely reliant on mom and dad and grandpa and, and adults to care. And you think of Jesus coming as a baby, the, the King of kings, Lord of lords, coming as a baby, so small, helpless, seemingly insignificant, how on earth is this baby going to gain the victory over our predicament of sin and shame? Separation from God. If you're honest with yourself, this time of year at Christmas, you don't have to look far. See the evidence of the fall and the struggle. Our actions, our, our words, our thoughts, our selfishness. And you see, our tendency is to do one of two things, maybe both of these things. One is to run and hide, much like Adam and Eve did. When we come to grips with our failure, when we come to grips with the fact that we've bought into a lie, We've been robbed. There's a lot of shame that goes along with that and the tendency is to back away. I don't know how many times I've seen this. So many times in my time as a pastor, I've spoken with people and they've, they've gone through some deep, dark times where it could be expressed as none other than the enemy has come in and robbed them. And the tendency so often, you may have felt this from time to time, is when, when there's sin and there's shame, what you, you feel like you need to do is back away from community and back away from God. You might be here this morning and that's something that you have done or you feel like doing or in the process of doing. The other way, and as I said, it could be one, the other, it could be both at the same time. And the other, we feel like we've got to come out swinging and we have to try to fix it ourselves. We've got to try and work to gain the approval of God on our own and see how we can work our way back into that right standing. Yeah, we've been, we've been robbed, we've been stolen from, but 
doggone it, I'm not going to let that happen again, and I'm going to be on my guard, and I'm going to do it, and God, I promise you that this time will be different, and, and just watch me and see what I can do, and we feel like we have to prove ourselves to God. You might be here this morning, you might be in that place. You might have convinced yourself of that or in the process of doing that right now. Both of those are negating the fact that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ. Because that is His solution and it truly is the only solution. A baby, the seed of a virgin, He, He will gain the victory. A helpless baby fully reliant on human care He's a gift promised to us from the heart of God in the garden. A permanent, eternal, crushing defeat of the enemy. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. And in Matthew chapter 1, we have this birth account. And if you need evidence and you need um, uh, support... The idea of this enmity and this struggle and that was pronounced over humanity, you don't have to go much farther than the genealogy of Matthew 1. And you read the names in the line of Jesus' family and just the struggle that existed for generations and centuries throughout history. It was present. But yet in the same way that there was a pronouncement of the seed coming and winning victory, here's the culmination of it in Matthew chapter 1. It says there, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, didn't we just talk about trying to manage things ourselves and do things on our own? Joseph wasn't exempt from that, was he? But the Lord appeared and spoke to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Remember Genesis 3. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus. For he, he, Jesus, Emmanuel, your Redeemer, the Messiah, will save his people from their sins. We don't have to do it on our own. And God's not that God sitting in heaven pointing the finger going, how could you believe that lie? And as He comes looking and He says, where are you? He's not saying it with a tone of voice that's getting ready to beat you up again and again and again and again. He's sitting there saying it with a heart of grace and compassion saying, will you come back into a relationship with me and you don't have to manage it or control it or figure it out or accomplish it on yourself. I have done it because I sent my son Jesus to pay the price. So that chasm is eliminated, that, that, that chasm is eliminated, that gap is gone. You can enter into a relationship with me once again. Let's pray together, all right?